Let's turn over to Matthew chapter 13 this morning. Matthew chapter 13. And we are arriving at the last section of Matthew chapter 13. And we'll be dealing this morning primarily with the subject of the parable of the net. The parable of the net. I want to read just verses 47 through 50. Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. I don't probably have to say it, but this is an extremely sobering portion of Scripture, as all of God's Word is, of course. But Matthew begins to explain to us now a bit of a change in the instruction of our Lord. He begins to now tell a parable that contains an exhortation, of course, but also a warning. The very scope of this parable is much the same of what we learned back when we looked at the parable of the wheat and the tares, which taught us that as long as the church is in the world, as long as the visible church especially is in the world, there is always going to be a mixture of good and bad. Uh, There's always going to be the wheat and the tares, and there's always going to be the sheep and the goats, as long as the church is in this world. But that one day there is a perfect, righteous separation that is to come. That separation will divide one from the other. That separation is not expected to occur, nor should we expect it to occur, until the day of judgment. So it's something that we are not looking to happen right this moment, but it will happen. Now remember these last parables that Jesus has been teaching, especially back with the one we learned about the treasure hidden in the field, was not primarily spoken to the multitudes, as many of them were, but was spoken primarily to the disciples. Jesus was revealing to them the things of the present age. Of course, the kingdom of Heaven is in view. The kingdom of heaven is like, he says many, many times. But he was manifesting more the present age. What am I to take? What am I to make of the present age? How am I to look upon the world and how to make sense of it all? Of course, we're not talking about human sense as much as we are talking about spiritual sense. But he gives a parable. And really, I've broken this up into a few very simple headings. In verses 47 through 48, he tells us about the net. Verses 49 through 50, he tells us about the last judgment. Verses 51 through 52, he tells us again about the treasure. And then verses 53 through 58, he tells us about the unbelief. Simple headings, but very directed in what the Lord was instructing and what the Lord's purpose was for why he was instructing his disciples in this manner. But you'll notice that he uses very common pictures as he has been through the parables, things that his disciples would be able to relate to very closely, very personally. 
especially when he speaks about the net. Verse 47, he says that the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. Jesus, of course, was talking about the methods that were used by fishermen. Fishermen on the Sea of Galilee especially were known to use what was referred to as a dragnet. It was a large net that would often be connected between two different boats and it would hang vertically so that as the boats went out, the boats would continue just to move and anything that was in that net's uh, way would be collected into that net. Once that net was full, that net would be pulled ashore and of course that net would bring in things that were not all good. Uh, just like today, if we were to go and put a drag net in a, in a pond or a lake in the ocean, as you began to drag that, it, there'd be a lot in that net, but not everything in that net would be good. And this is the method that he's using. He's using these common everyday illustrations. But as that boats, those boats are moving, it would also sweep up large quantities of fish, no doubt. If you're going to fish and you want to catch a lot of them, you're going to put a drag net out more than just a single line. But then notice that he talks about, not only is it gathered, it gathers fish of every kind, which is very important to understand. Now again, I'm not going to get into all the details about how many varieties of fish were in the Sea of Galilee, but of course there were many varieties there. Believe it or not, some of those fish were edible, some of those fish were not edible. But the net doesn't differentiate between them. The net doesn't pick, oh, that's a good one. I'll separate that one out. I'll only catch the good fish. He says that has to be done when the net is drawn to the shore. And then the fisherman can go through the net and say, that's bad. This one's good. Bad and good and separate them out. The fisherman would never try to separate them while the net is being pulled. The net catches everything in its path. So after the net's been dragged, Filled with fish, verse 48 tells us, which when it was full, they drew to shore, sat down, and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. When the nets got as full as it can be, it's brought to the shore. The fishermen sort the fish. Some of the fish they could take to the market and sell. The other ones they knew this fish has absolutely no value because nobody can eat it. And it's cast off. But you see God again separating. Just like He separates the sheep from the goat, separates the wheat from the tares, separation of the fish which are good and the fish which are bad. We have to keep in mind that the judgment of God will involve a separation. And it will involve a righteous division. God will not make a mistake. He will not accidentally allow that which is declared to be a tare to enter into heaven as wheat, nor will he allow an unedible fish, if you will, to enter into the kingdom of God. That separation will be perfect, but that separation is not to happen now. That separation is not, this is not the moment where we are determining or God is going to say, here they are. But he says that the net is going to be the means in which all will be caught and then the separation will take place. As the fishermen created these piles, again, what did Jesus say? He says the kingdom of heaven is like. Like what? It's like a net. It encompasses a great area of water, 
It takes into the net various things. All kinds of creatures. The net successfully caught many things that the net was full. But not everything in the net is good. So it gathers. The net is for gathering. As long as the net is in the water, it's going to catch good and it's going to catch bad. But the net is not the one that's doing the sorting. The net is that which is being used to draw in and to bring that which will ultimately be sorted. The shore is the place of separation. That's what Jesus means by this parable. Very direct. Not simple, of course. But as in a parable, if we understand this today, we're understanding uh, the things in which God is teaching us. And He very clearly says, so shall it be at the end of the world. The kingdom of heaven's like a net, and at the end of the world, just like the fisherman who takes that net in and he puts the net and he sorts it and separates it, he said the end of the world's going to be the exact same way. And he says specifically that he is going to, the angels are going to come forth. And I want you to notice, again, you may have a different translation. I think the translation I'm using in the King James today, it uses the word sever. Sever is a very sharp it's a depiction of something very sharp. It, it, it severs, it cuts off. Severs the wicked from among the just. So that means that there are two types of people. The wicked and the just. There is not a third category. There is no such thing as almost just. Just like there's no such thing as almost wicked. You're either wicked or you're just. The just doesn't mean you're without sin. But as far as the kingdom of heaven goes, those that are in the kingdom of heaven will only be the just, not the wicked. And he says there is a very clear severing that's going to take place. And that the angels, oftentimes the most neglected of all creatures in the Bible, probably are angels. And sadly, probably the most misused are angels as we see them in people's homes as decorations. And we think, well, these are just nice little soft angels who just are looking over us to make sure our house is blessed. He says, no, the angels are going to come forth like reapers. And they're going to sever the just from the wicked. Hopefully you can never look at that kind little angel in your home or wherever it is that way any longer. Because the reality is that these angels are not coming and they're not coming to be bargained with and they're not coming to then decide which one gets in and which one doesn't. No, it says they're going to come and they're going to do the severing. The wicked from the just. So we see that this kingdom of heaven, as it sorts and collects and brings, and then it's sorted by when it's drawn to the shore. The angels, the shore, a picture here of when that judgment day comes, it'll be the place where the separation takes place. And verses 49 through 50, which we've already introduced, verse 49, the last judgment is being referenced here. We see Jesus now teaching on probably behind the, behind the need for the blood of Jesus Christ for atonement and repentance. We see probably the next most neglected of all subjects in our modern church. Judgment. 
There are thousands of people that go to church every single week for years and never are confronted with the judgment of God. They're not confronted with the truth that there's coming a judgment that's going to separate the wicked from the just. No, they're just confronted with the entertainment of what the church is supposed to be bringing and what the church is going to do and how it's going to make churches our happy place. There was a day and age when you couldn't go to a true Bible church and would not hear judgment being thundered each and every day and repentance being proclaimed and repent and be saved. None of the foolishness that we see happening in so many churches today. There is coming a judgment, and it's going to be the last judgment, not a judgment to say, okay, if I've missed all of this, I'll settle it then. No, this is an eternal severing. And yet, Jesus is teaching on the last judgment. Every human being are going, is going to be held accountable. I know we like to get into our our Christian comfort zones, and we like to think, I'm glad that there's absolutely positively nothing for me to worry about. But the reality is, is Jesus teaches about this judgment, and He said the kingdom of heaven is like this net. Again, that as the net goes forth in the visible church, there are believers, there are unbelievers, there's wheat, there's tares. And yet, in the last day, the angels of God will separate the saved from the unsaved, the just from the unjust. There will be those who enter into the kingdom of heaven and those who won't. We're afraid to even talk about judgment when we preach the gospel, sadly. You can't have the gospel without judgment. It's like you can't have the gospel without repentance. You can't tell somebody to repent and then not talk about the judgment of God. You can't, cannot not talk about the fear of God. You can't talk about the holiness and the righteousness of God. And you can't, you can't neglect the, the reality of how does a sinner come to God? All of these things. And yet, there is this promise that Jesus makes about the wicked being severed and cut off to eternal punishment. Just like the fisherman, after he draws the net, picks out those that are good, puts them in proper vessels, what a picture this is. And he casts the dead and useless fish away. And again, the angels come forth by God's orders, by the way. The angels are under the direct orders of God. They carry out God's purposes, carry out God's plan. And yet, within every generation, there have always been wheat, there's always been tares, there's always been sheep, and there's always been goats, there's always been good fish, and there's always been bad fish. And we may not know until the judgment. But it is certain we should be sure of our own salvation. We should be sure that we have repented of our sins, that we've believed on Christ alone, that we're not trusting in anything or anyone today other than Christ. Unlike many, we don't wait until an invitation time to command and say, repent and believe the gospel. As some sort of a conclusion to a sermon, no, the last judgment is, oh, the judgment of God into everlasting punishment is only avoided by repenting of your sins and by believing in Jesus Christ alone. Relying on His sufficiency as a Savior. 
Some would say today, I don't believe in the judgment. Same way I don't believe in the promise of His coming. Scoffers. Peter writes about there'll be scoffers. There have always been people that mock. There's always been scoffers. You shouldn't be alarmed and surprised when you meet somebody who mocks you for your faith or scoffs at your belief. You actually believe that there's a judgment. You believe there's a hell. Absolutely we do. Why do you believe that? Because the Bible clearly declares that all these things are true. That is our stance. Well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, therein lies the problem. Why do you and I believe the Bible? Because God in His mercy has opened our eyes to see this truth. That's why if you at the last day, the last judgment, the sorting process, and you are included in the just, you can only give God glory and praise and honor for what Christ has done for you. You can't boast that I put myself in the net. I saw the net going by and I decided, well, I better jump in the net. Why, this might be my last chance. It's by the grace of God you're in that net. And that grace, that mercy, is something we can never praise God enough for. There are no doubt or many. How many, we don't know. Will there be millions who are cast out? Will there be billions who are cast out? Will there be billions of good fish? Again, not any good of themselves, obviously. But every human being is going to be held accountable for what we are, who we are. At the end of our days, we're going to stand before God. Even as believers, we're going to stand before God. There's going to be an examination of us. And it's all about the kingdom. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. Those unjust, those wicked are not going to have a final argument at the judgment seat to see if God will let them in now. There's no request when you die to Peter if Peter will let you in. Those that are truly Christ's are going to be there. Those who are not will be cast out. What do we do as people who believe the gospel. I don't want to over-illustrate this too much. But we are simply just to preach and proclaim that which we believe about God and about the gospel. We're not to try in any way, shape, or form try to sort through the sorting or to determine and say, you are and you're not. We're just simply to throw out the net of the gospel and wherever that gospel net goes. And by the way, you and I don't have a right to say who deserves it because you didn't deserve it. You didn't deserve to enter into the kingdom of God any more than anybody else in this room. And yet, how spiritual pride can very quickly and very deceptively sneak up into our hearts and minds and we start to just get a little bit feeling good about ourselves and saying, you know what? I'm much better than those wicked fish I know. But you understand that God ultimately through His angels will do that final separating. There will be a separation. It will not be until the end are we going to be able to see and know for sure. There are many people today that are so caught up in what's been described as doing the last thing first. We're busy trying to sort instead of just preaching the Gospel. 
It's in the wrong order. We've never been told to do the sorting process. God's never said, I want you to go out and sort them. He's already said the angels are going to do that. But are we even obedient in our gospel? Are we even obedient in preaching the gospel? Not from a pulpit. Folks, one of the purposes of the church gathering for corporate worship with an intentional emphasis on the gospel itself is that we would leave this place and all fulfill our responsibilities to proclaim the gospel. There's no preacher... And again, I hope you folks take this the right way because you know that I wouldn't say the things that I say if I didn't love you folks. But it's not about the preacher preaching a good sermon. It's about you going out in an obedience, obeying God's command. Now, I appreciate you say your sermon was great. It was helpful. I want, I'll take that and I'll say give God all the glory for it. But that's not the reason for the preaching. It's that it equips us to go and to do what we're called to do. Every one of us has a different walk of life. Every one of us comes in contact with different people. Every one of us has an opportunity at some point during a week to preach the gospel to somebody. And it's not optional. Where this became that it's just the preachers that are supposed to throw out the gospel net. No, we're all supposed to be preaching the gospel. Most of you will probably never stand behind a pulpit and ever preach the gospel this way. But this isn't just meant to be heard. It's meant to be done. Even for me, this doesn't fulfill all of my responsibility. I need to go out and do a better job of not just hearing a sermon on Sunday, but understanding that there really is a real judgment and there really is a real severing there really is a process that is coming. And yet, am I being faithful to what God has called us to do? Jesus in verses 51 and 52, it, it seems as if it comes to an abrupt end. But I want you to understand, He's not bringing this to an abrupt end. He's using it to build on what He has already said. Verse 50, he said, and they shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. That, there's no question that's a direct reference to hell. And Jesus immediately asked the question, have ye understood all these things? Now at first read, it's, we're, we're going to be very quick just to read through this and look at their response. They say unto him, yea, Lord, so Jesus is now going to begin talking to them about the treasure it is of the kingdom of heaven. He returns back to what he's already talked about in previous uh, parables. But as Jesus asked them in verse 51, they say unto him, yes, we understand it, Lord. We understand what you're saying. Now, if you recall back in verse 36, the disciples said this about the parable of the tares and the wheat. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came unto him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Back in verse 36, they said, Lord, explain this to us. But now he says, do you understand? And they say, yea, Lord, we understand. They assured him they understood what he was talking about. Then he proceeds to tell another parable. Not about the kingdom itself as much, but about those who are instructed about the kingdom. In other words, if you have an understanding of this kingdom, here's what your responsibilities are. 
Then said he unto them, therefore, now why is the therefore, therefore? Because they responded to his question by saying, yea, Lord, we understand. Therefore, every scribe which is instructed in the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. What is he saying? Very clearly, this important question that he asks, he says, do you understand truth? Do you understand that it is essential to understand truth? To understand it ought to be your great desire today. Your great desire ought to be, I want to understand the truth of God's word. I want to understand what's being preached. I want to understand what's being proclaimed. Not just simply hearing a story or a parable. I want to understand truth. Folks, it is incumbent upon all of us to not just be familiar with Scripture, but to understand truth. This idea that we can just kind of lazily just kind of let the Word of God just kind of swing by when it's convenient. Look, we ought to desire God's Word and truth, as David said, more than our necessary food. You should have such a hunger for truth today that it's almost unsatisfiable. To where when you read God's Word, you're like, I need more. When I hear God's Word preached, I want to hear more. And again, I don't mean any disrespect, but if we're bored with the Word of God, we're bored reading it, we're bored hearing it, the problem is not with the Word of God. The problem is with you. The problem is with me. If I'm bored at a church service that's honoring Jesus Christ, Christ is not the problem. We'll be entertained for hours for every other thing in the world. But yet when it comes to the thing of, things of Christ, well, when it's convenient. Have you understood, he said. And if you understand, then you have a responsibility. Think about it now. Do we even under, fully understand the seven parables that we've covered to get to this point? They comprehend what he's saying. Did they fully comprehend it all that they should have? Probably not. I know I've been guilty of this. I don't want to get too personal. I've been guilty of this. We're all guilty of this, thinking we've come, we've arrived. We're the purveyor of truth. If people really want to know the truth, they need to come to us, come to me. I got it. The reality is I'm not coming to any of you. And you shouldn't come to me as the purveyor of truth. You should go to the Word of God and if what that person's saying to you matches what God's Word says, then you know you're hearing truth. But you never, ever, ever go and do and say and be just because the pastor told you to. I do this because the pastor told me to. No. No. You believe this because you understand truth. And because you understand truth, you understand what the truth is. And we do need, we do need to teach our children that there is not different truth out there. And you better do it. The world's doing it. They're teaching them their version of truth. And if you don't do it, they're going to teach them. And then you're going to say, where did you learn that? Don't blame the world. You're going to have to do a lot of debriefing as your kids grow up. And I'm talking about intentional debriefing. You need to tell them 
hey, what you heard today, that's not right. Don't just let it blow by and say, hey, you know, that, that, that was innocent. If you think there's not an intentional assault on your children, you've got your heads buried way too far in the sand. Everything that's happened in this world is after your kids because the younger you get them, the better likelihood you're going to snare them. That's why we're so concerned about your kids and that's why we're exposing them to real truth, not flannel graph stuff. We want them to hear the word of God and then we want them to see it in you. We want them to see you stand for the truth. We want to see you say it. The greatest influence you have on your kids is not what I'm even going to say, but what you say. And if it matches what they're hearing already, I'm hearing truth. So that when they're friends, by the way, be careful. Be careful who their friends are. I'm meddling a lot, aren't I? But you better be careful. Jesus then again compares the truth and he compares it to a treasure. Again, treasure has been a theme. Therefore, every scribe, he goes back to that like a householder, brings forth treasure, things new and old. Jesus saying here that those who find this treasure, those that know about the kingdom, we're not to keep this treasure to ourselves, but we are to point others to that treasure. Folks, the most valuable thing in the field is not you. The most valuable thing in the field was Jesus Christ and the kingdom of heaven. That's the value. It wasn't because you were so valued that Jesus came digging for you. No, the reality is you are a part of the kingdom of heaven and a part of the kingdom of heaven. Heaven, you have the greatest treasure. And that treasure is not meant to just be kept. That treasure is meant to be given. To find that kingdom and to find no Christ is the greatest treasure we're ever going to find in this world. To overlook it and to ignore it and to simply say, you know what, this today means nothing for me is to neglect to the own damnation of your soul. Oh, damnation. We don't talk about damning souls anymore, do we? No, that's too negative. I didn't come to church to hear about my sin and my damnation and the consequences of my sin. Yet Jesus preached more on that than he did all the things we like to emphasize. You see, the reality is, is this treasure, if the Lord has instructed us and has bought us into his kingdom, we are to understand it and teach what we have understood. Let me just say, don't try to go beyond what you understand. Okay, there are things I don't get yet. Say, preachers have to understand it all. You better run that preacher out of town that understands it all. He doesn't understand it all. There's things I get a grip on in one minute and I don't have a grip on it the next. I'm like, wait a minute. It's a continual desire for truth. But then Jesus leads us into really what is the finishing of the parables for this time. And he says, And it came to pass that when Jesus finished these parables, he departed thence. And notice where he goes. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, inasmuch that they were astonished and said, Whence hath this man this wisdom and these mighty works? This fourth heading is the unbelief. At the end of this series of parables, Matthew writes about Jesus returning back to his own country. Up to this point, Jesus has been ministering from Capernaum uh, on the Sea of Galilee. Now Matthew seems to be taking us back to Nazareth, which is really what Jesus' hometown is. Why did he go there? 
Well, we're not really told exactly why, but when he goes back, the first thing he does is he teaches in the synagogue. And you'll notice that they're astonished by what he says. And it's interesting, the wording, whence hath this man, or how does this man have this wisdom and these mighty works? And they begin to ask a series of questions. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brethren? He said, this ordinary man, how does he teach this way? And how does he have these mighty works? The one thing that could ever be denied about Jesus, they could not deny his miracles. They couldn't deny he was actually performing them. There were people that watched it happen. There were people that watched him heal people. They couldn't deny it, but they refused to acknowledge who he was. All they saw him is, how can this be? This is just a man who's a carpenter's son. And his sisters, are they not all with us? Verse 56, whence then hath this man all these things? How does this man have all these things? They knew Jesus and his humble origins. He did not come as a conquering king. He came in humility. He came to be born and in a stable, right? He came in, in, in no, uh, no exaltation of himself. And yet they're offended by the reality that he has these things and he's quote unquote exalting himself. He's just a weak carpenter's son. Why would we listen to him? Jesus, as his masterful teaching always is, verse 57, and they were offended in him. There are some of you today that might be offended. You don't even know you're offended. You're offended by the reality that Christ has said there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to be saved. That Christ is the only way. And maybe you've bought the lie that he's just a carpenter's son. He's just a good man. He's not really anybody I need to be concerned about. He's not really a Messiah. He didn't die for my sins because I'm not that bad. They're offended. Folks, don't ever be shocked when the world's offended by the gospel because the gospel is offensive. The gospel cuts right to the heart. It's like a two-edged sword. It cuts right to the heart. It's going to offend the sinner. It's going to bring the sinner to have to be confronted by the reality of who they really are. And yet Jesus says, when this happens, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country, in his own house. Of course, we understand that the calling of a prophet by God was something done by God. It had nothing to do with human ability. A man could not declare himself to be a prophet, although people today try to do it. Just like a person that says they're an apostle, run as far away from them as you can. Don't even give them a single moment of your time because they're not an apostle. It's heresy. They haven't seen the risen Christ. There's no apostle. But yet here he says that a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country. It makes perfect sense that everybody who knew him best were skeptical about him, right? Jesus claimed to be speaking as God and speaking for God. He made a claim of equality with God. He put himself not only equal with God, but he also put himself as with the prophets of the Old Testament, which they respected so much. They would respect Abraham, but they wouldn't respect him. This chapter 
He's refused, rejected amongst his own people in his own town. And Matthew closes this chapter by noting, and he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now this doesn't indicate to us that it was because of the people's lack of faith hindered what he could do. He simply refrained from the performing of those miracles and those signs because he knew that at that point these would have been wasted on them. They were not going to believe. Sadly, people even from the very hometown in which Jesus was brought up missed him. They missed the treasure. I can't help but think about how many people have sat in church all their life and never, never, ever, ever see the treasure because they don't want to see it. I know salvation is of the Lord. But there are some who come to church that don't want to know truth. They don't want to try. They don't want anything to do with it. They're here to make somebody happy. They're here to soothe their own conscience. They're not here because they want to know truth. They're here because for some other motive. But as we've said, Christ turns no one away who comes to Him. You have no excuse today not to come to Christ if you're not. You have nothing that you can blame on God if you refuse to repent of your sins and come to Him. He is not going to cast you away. But you say, I don't want the truth. I don't want treasure. I'm content with my level of God. You're missing the greatest treasure. If you miss Christ, you've missed it all. I don't care how well you think you know the Scriptures. If you miss Christ, you've missed it all. As the gospel and the gospel continues to go forth in this age in which we live, there is going to come a day when the last gospel message will be preached. I don't know when that's going to be. And I'm not even going to try to guess. Someone says, when's the end? We're not told. I have no idea. Can you give us an approximation? No. Can you give us a little bit more hint? No. But the Bible says there's an end coming. And says there's a judgment coming. And all I do know is that all that have been called, when they are brought in through the results of the gospel and are saved, whenever that end is, the end of the world's going to come. Gospel ministry is going to end. That net is no longer being drawn. That net's now drawn to shore. It's being sorted. That net's not going back out. So those that believe, I got plenty of time, I got another chance. I'll wait and see if this is all true. The net will be removed by then. You will have already been severed. Those nets, as they're drawn, preachers will stop having to preach about the gospel. They'll have to stop preaching about the coming of Christ because it will all come to be. Whenever God finishes His work and all of His are gathered into, even Christ uses the example of being gathered into the barn, into everlasting glory, into, those, into the place where Christ said, I go to my Father. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. One day when all that is finished and all that is done, to everlasting righteousness at the same time, How many? We don't know in either place, but there will be millions maybe, billions, who are severed eternally. 
Sometimes there's passages of Scripture that we just, we have to sit back and we have to be in awe of what God is telling us, what God is saying. But as I've mentioned to you, I would say today, whatever you do, do not ignore, do not ignore the message today. Don't ignore repentance. Don't ignore believing. Come to Christ. Folks, be wary of the excuse your mind makes when you say, I already did that. What did you do? What did you do? I already prayed. That's not what saves you. Repentance, believing on Christ. For the believer, we're told, and as we'll observe here in a few moments, we're told to remember these things. We're told to remember what Christ has done for us. Not as people who have no hope, but people who have an eternal hope. The observance of the Lord's Supper is, of course, a commandment that we're given. And it is a somber thought to think about what Jesus Christ has done for us. But we also rejoice in the reality that we have been saved from our sin So there is an element of joy to it. When we think about Christ's sacrifice, we're not putting him back on the cross. We're rejoicing that he's accomplished our salvation. So in a few moments, I'm going to invite you, and we'll have just a brief interval between the time we observe and our end of our service today. If you know Christ as your Savior, and you know that you have believed, you've repented of your sin, we invite you to stay with us and observe the Lord's Supper together. I would say to those that have not yet repented of their sins, repent of your sin today. Believe on Christ and run to him. Run to him. You might say, well, I have too many things in my life that I just don't want to deal with, so I'll just skip it. Why don't you repent of the sin that you're holding on to? Repent of your sin. If it's sin that believes it prevents you from taking Deal with that now. Don't run from it. So in a few moments, we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. But let's finish this time together by singing the hymn on 413. And you can just remain seated since we'll go right into the supper here in just a few moments. Again, if you need to make your way out uh, during this brief interval between, certainly you can do that.